CANU is short for the Council for Canadian Urbanism. We're, this is our ninth annual national summit, uh, which is a an organization of like-minded, high-profile, leading urbanists from multiple disciplines. We're, we're relentlessly multi, multidisciplinary uh, from coast to coast that have embraced the regional distinctiveness of parts of Canada but recognize there is a universal and sort of unique nature to Canadian urbanism that makes us different than the United States, that, than Europe, than Latin America, etc. And so we celebrate that, we talk about that, and we are a movement with a mission, which is not just to serve our members or put out a publication or something like that. Our mission is to change cities, to change communities, to make them better. Well, we always learn from our host city, and we always hope our host city learns from us, and, we, and, and of course it's about the national dialogue. Our host city, we've had specific conversations about the Herculean labor of transforming the most infamous uh, intersection in Canada, perhaps, uh, uh, Portage and Maine. Uh, we're constantly just uh, reinforcing and sharing best practices. Uh, weighing in on lo both local narratives that have um, a, a resonate across the country, like um, like uh, whether you tear down a big piece of car infrastructure, like the Gardner or the uh, uh, the viaducts in Vancouver, or uh, whether you should do transit referendums, like we had in in Vancouver a few years ago. Uh, weighing in on those big issues, being a voice uh, for understanding what a better urbanism is and how to get there. So we're going to be still doing a lot of that. We're putting a lot more energy into uh, issues like urbanizing the suburbs in a successful way. So there's a huge amount of energy. At the end of each one of our, su our summits, there's just a massive amount of energy, and our challenge is always how do we make sure we harness that, make sure it doesn't bleed out into the ether and get lost as we move forward. I'm Brent Totterin, and this is Spacing Radio. Back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This month, we bring you the highlights from the latest Canoe Summit in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The Council for Canadian Urbanism and founding president Brent Tadarian bring some of the biggest names in city building to a Canadian city each year. This year, the themes were City Making Math, the data that allows for a good city building and the challenge of expressing the story it tells. We speak to Barbara Myers, urban planner with SVN, who makes her home in both Toronto and Winnipeg. We speak to Halifax's urban design program manager, Jacob Ritchie, about how compelling data sparked major change in that city. And we speak to the new vice president of the Council of Canadian Urbanism, Kaylin Anderson, about next steps. But first, we speak to urbanist, architect, and Winnipeg Free Press columnist, Brent Bellamy, about the particular challenges facing this year's host city. Stand by. So there's a lot of things I could ask you about, a lot of things that came out of this conference. Uh, but the, the first thing I, I want to ask you about is something I saw on Twitter, uh, where you were celebrating uh, a convenience store. And to people outside of Winnipeg or in different cities, uh, that might seem surprising. But you were, you were speaking in a, a specific context, and, and it is cause to celebrate. Yeah, you know, I actually took a little bit of criticism for celebrating a convenience store because it's, it, I got called a booster. 
and for celebrating something so small as a convenience store. But to me, it's a much bigger thing. When you're creating a neighborhood, what are, what are the things that make a neighborhood livable? To me, that was a symbol that all the effort that we've done to try to build neighborhood in downtown Winnipeg is finally starting to take root. Right. Because if somebody is going to spend their own money and take the risk to open a convenience store, that to me, that's saying they believe that there is a neighborhood here, that there is a market that will support that investment. And that has never, in this area, in the exchange district itself, which is sort of the burgeoning uh, downtown area, that it, it's really saying to me that a neighborhood is beginning to, to form. And that's what I was celebrating, the, the fact that neighborhood is happening, not that there is a tiny little convenience store. <laughs> well, yeah, because we, when we talk about a complete and healthy neighborhood, we talk about a balance of live, work, and play. And in downtown Winnipeg, I mean, we have lots of play. Uh, we have we have the it's the home of the Jets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, lots of stuff to do, uh, lots of places to go to work. But to live, you need things like a convenience store in case you need to rush out and get diapers or, or a grocery store uh, so that you're not just eating fast food. Yeah, you know, it's a big debate in Winnipeg. We used to have a quite large grocery store in the Hudson's Bay Company. And then they closed it. And so it's been sort of maybe seven or eight years with no formal grocery store in downtown. And we waste a lot of energy talking about how do we get a grocery store downtown. And there's a debate of, you know, the chicken and egg. First, we have to have enough people, then it will follow. But to me, for urban living, a convenience store and those sort of butcher, baker, candlestick maker type things are far more important for the daily for daily living than a grocery store. I, I would love to have a grocery store, don't get me wrong, but to me, it's having those smaller corner stores right. so you can just run out to get milk or to run out, and it's not even just about downtown. It's every community. I, to me, adding corner stores, like I think when we design new communities, we should start with the corner stores and work our way out mm-hmm. and build build communities that make access to corner stores easily because that's what makes a truly walkable neighborhood in my mind. It's not, you're not going to walk to the grocery store necessarily as much as you will walk to the corner store. So to me, it's a really important piece of our urban fabric that we don't talk about all that much. And that takes us to the, the sort of theme of, of this uh, Can You conference. Um, so uh, a question was posed at the beginning. How, how do we communicate uh, urbanism as a, as a good thing, as a, a benefit, a net benefit, uh, to, to people who aren't necessarily on board? I find... It's a very difficult argument to make because most people don't think about it. Most people are sort of happy in their life. And Winnipeg, as an example, we've built a city for cars. We've built a city that all the lifestyle in Winnipeg demands a car. And so that becomes the number one priority. And things like Portage and Maine become... I understand why everyone's freaked out about it because driving is the number one issue to most people in their lifestyle. I find... So when you make the, the urbanist argument... It doesn't resonate with people because they don't care. They live in their suburban box, and it doesn't matter what's happening downtown. Why would I go downtown? It's dangerous and dirty and all those things that downtowns are in their mind. The only argument I ever see having traction, there's two arguments that, I, that have traction for me. One is the, the financial argument about how cities are being sustainable and how you, you deal with taxes and crumbling roads and if being able to afford infrastructure and all the, the detrimental effects of urban sprawl, that does ha- resonate with them because they can see the potholes. They complain about the traffic. They complain about those things. And so if you can equate good urbanism with making their life better even in the suburbs, 
that it makes the city more sustainable, that we can now afford to build a school in your neighborhood so your kids can actually walk instead of being bused all the way across town, or that your roads will be smoother, that resonates with them. The only other one that works, I find, is talking about young people and talking about people's children. Because the real decision makers in our community anyways are, you know, they're 60-year-old men, generally. And so when they're thinking about what affects them, I often say their children are looking for lifestyle choices. And in Winnipeg, as an example, we offer sort of one. It's the suburban Canadian dream. And more often than not, we're losing young people. They go to university here, we lose them to Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, because they're looking for that alternate urban lifestyle that you can't get in Winnipeg or you can't get to the same level. So I always say to them, do you want to live in the same city as your children and your grandchildren? And if you do, we need to start building a city that they want to live in, that they want to be in love with and, and say, I'm not leaving after university, I'm going to raise my family here. And they, I can always see in their eyes, like, yeah, I actually do want my kids to live here. So that's a really strong argument that I always use as well. Well, Brenda, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, anytime. Barbara Myers is perhaps the perfect guide for this year's summit. With her experience with Metropolitan Toronto, as well as the mid-sized city of Winnipeg, she has an eye for urbanism on many different scales. So this morning you were talking about the uh, power of infill, and uh, I was wondering if you could uh, unpack what what exactly that means, you know, especially for a mid-sized city or or maybe even in a city like Toronto. Well, I think infill is where the creative energy is happening. Infill is where developers are looking for opportunities. Infill is where existing organizations and businesses are recognizing opportunity. And uh, my particular interest in the interest of SVN is really church infill. And we're seeing a lot of fantastic opportunities where churches are going into joint venture with companies and businesses and really developing housing, uh, repurposing in interesting ways and making the very most out of infill opportunities opportunities mm-hmm. churches like especially some of those i assume would be almost heritage sites as well right a lot of them are heritage sites in very prime locations with excess land and they are really developing some very creative and innovative infill projects on their own mm-hmm. and as someone who works both in toronto and winnipeg i mean like a a larger mid-sized city and then obviously the third largest city in north america of uh, what do you take from each city and what can each city take from, from each other? That's a very interesting question. And it's my pleasure to work in two cities. Um, I think I take the kind of on-the-ground folksiness of Winnipeg, and then I take the great learnings and experience and really enterprising things that are happening in Toronto, kind of blend them together, and it's the best of both. I think uh, living in Winnipeg makes me a better Torontonian, and I think living working in Toronto makes me a better Winnipegger. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a bit about the, the firm that you work for? Um, like, what, what is their sort of um, guiding principle? I work for SVN Architects and Planners in Toronto. Uh, our two senior partners are Drew Sinclair and John Van Ostren. Both have been in the planning and design and architecture field for many years. Our real interest is housing and mobility. Uh, we're really interested in the combination, the collaboration of planning, urban design, and architecture. We're really interested in community building. And um, we take uh, a very collaborative approach to all of our projects, and we're doing work across the country. Um, So when you talk about housing and mobility, is that in conjunction with each other? 
the two are certainly related, but our architectural studio focuses on housing, mm-hmm. and our urban design practice focuses on mobility and transportation. Though they're both very definitely connected, when I say that, that's really the focus of those two areas of our office. So we're on, we're on day two of this conference, and um, one of the questions posed uh, right at the beginning was... Um, you know, we, we have a lot of people at this conference who are experts in their field, uh, very smart people uh, with uh, you know, lots of experience. But how do, how do you preach the good word of, of good built form uh, to people who uh, could get it, uh, but, you know, you're competing with a lot of other chatter and uh, sometimes uh, opposing forces that, uh, that have a platform that might be louder? I think really demonstration is the biggest thing. I think that a lot of what we do as planners and architects is really addressing everyday issues that everybody's involved with in their communities and, and their own issues about transportation and housing. And I think really demonstrating, showing a few great projects in any number of cities demonstrates to people what's possible. And then just really great conversation. What if? What would be possible? Why do we have to do it one way and could we do it another way? So I think that that combination of demonstration and just engaging conversation uh, helps in this whole field and to talk about interesting issues. Mm-hmm. And when you come into a city of any size, really, um, and, and you propose infill projects that um, you know may may not represent what has been the status quo in that place or that that given neighborhood, how do you? I guess what I'm asking is, how do you head the nimbies off at the pass? <laughs> well, I think that every project is extremely challenging. And I think that we go into these projects with great vision and great enterprise, and the, the NIMBY factor is extremely challenging. And I would say that in some cases it's dealt with more successfully and more easily than in other cases. I think it's a fact of development. It's a fact of change. And I think that in many ways we respect the, the opinions of people who are longtime residents and neighbors in neighborhoods, um, but I think it's a compromise. It's, it's a continual compromise, a continual challenge, and um, nobody is wrong. Uh, it's just a matter of finding compromise. Right. And uh, uh, something I've seen a lot of in, in projects that uh, were talked about, successful projects in this conference, was um, uh, they often started with a sort of front-end loading consultation, and I'm seeing that more and more in, in Toronto. Is that sort of the, the way to go, the, the, the idea of... Uh, before we put pencil to pad, we're going to go to, into a community and say, what do you see your neighborhood as in the future? Absolutely. And I would say at SVN in particular, uh, John Van Nostrand has been doing community engagement work, as has Drew Sinclair and Shonda Wang in our office for, for a very long time. SVN is very good at this work. We pride ourselves on it. Uh, and it's certainly the foundation of all of our design and planning work is really comprehensive engagement and consultation. And I think that you can't approach anybody's neighborhood or any project without really thorough consultation. So it's certainly the first start to any of our projects, and it really lays the foundation for the entire project going forward. A major theme of the summit was city-making math. Urban planners and city staff have access to large amounts of research and data that help guide them but it's hard to communicate numbers in a way that's compelling enough to spark a change. Jacob Ritchie, however, tells the story of some numbers too compelling to ignore. So Jacob, you started with a question. 
And that question was, what will it cost us if we continue to build the way we're building in Halifax? That's correct. We did. We, we started with that question out of our regional plant. Uh, when we saw our growth patterns were continuing to tilt towards suburban growth, uh, we thought the economic argument might be a nice way uh, to talk to the community and to our council uh, about the different ways we can grow as a region. And you found that it was costing like the, the old status quo of sort of what were you seeing, sprawl? Uh, yeah, the, the continued expansion of greenfield development, so developing where there had been no development before, mm-hmm. uh, was going to cost um, on the order of billions of dollars more than an intensification program. Right. And so uh, you, you bring these numbers uh, to council and uh, there was some pushback from, from some elements. Uh, they, they wanted to maintain the status quo. Well, there was, it, I, I'll be honest, it predates my time at the municipality. Okay. Uh, but when the planning staff brought it forward, uh, there was a question around whether or not that sort of long-term financial planning was the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. And, and then when people saw the numbers, uh, it, it was compelling. It was compelling. Uh, in the end, we, we chose an interim step. Uh, there were three scenarios analyzed, the current growth, uh, uh, a 25% target, for growth in our regional center and a 40% target for growth in our regional center. And we chose, at a minimum, the 25% growth. But through further investigation in the ensuing years, uh, we've realized with the land availability and the interest, we would be smart to increase that. So in line with our regional plan policy, to have at least 25% of our growth in the regional center, the core, Mm -hmm. uh, we're able to accommodate up to 40% of our growth through some zoning changes that we're working on now. And when you talk about growth in the regional center, what, what kind of growth are we looking at? So we have used a, a gross estimate of growth at 1% a year, which tracks traditionally to our growth in Halifax Regional Municipality over the last few decades. Uh, we've seen in the last few years a slight uptick in growth, hitting uh, 2% last year, uh, but in the high 1.5 to 2%. So it's, it, it's about 1,000 units a year. Um, the, the quick math is that 425,000 people at 1% a year is about uh, 4,000 people. And at about two people per unit, it's about 2,000 units. Right. So if we can get 40% of that in our regional center, we'd be doing well and hitting that target, which would be about 800 units a year. So the goal is to attract people to the regional center, to, to build residences and, and to attract people to live in those residences. Yeah, people and jobs. Right. And so, uh, you know, give, give us a picture of what Halifax's regional center looked like before this sort of plan was initiated. So the regional center before this plan was initiated, or before our first regional plan in 2006, uh, we had uh, a a lot of vacant parking lots in our core. Uh, We had gravel parking lots in a lot of our downtown, and we had corridors uh, with a lot of single-story or maybe two-story commercial with surface parking in front of it, and uh, a a lot of really underutilized lots is what we'd call them. Right. And so then you, you started looking at uh, sort of mid-sized growth uh, or sort of d- gentle density, that sort of approach. Well, really, at first, uh, you know, a decade ago, we were happy to get anything built. In the right. So we were, we were happy when applications were coming in that maybe didn't follow the policy that was in place that was a bit out of date uh, from the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And we were happy to have anything. We worked through a site-specific zoning amendment 
process on many occasions and, and got density that did come in the form of six-story buildings, eight-story buildings, 14-story buildings, depending on the area and uh, the work we did with the neighborhood to work through those pro- planning processes. I'd like to talk about the, the work with the neighborhood because this might be my Toronto talking, but uh, I imagine some people might have uh, fought for the status quo, might have said, well, we've never had a building this tall or we've never had a building that looked like this or with this many units. Yeah, that, that conversation happens a lot and, and really they don't, we don't say never. I mean, there was a period of time in the 1960s and 70s when we built a lot of residential towers. Mm-hmm. Um, they just weren't necessarily a form that we wanted to continue. It was a lot of towers in the park, uh, a large brick and concrete structure with a lawn around it or maybe surface parking. Right. Um, so the examples they had to draw on for high-density multi-unit buildings were not things they wanted to see repeated. And, uh, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, when those came in, uh, people like me were defending those projects to say, this is the type of urban living we want. And, and that memory remains. So, you know, we, we recognize there's a lot of conversation to have with our community to build the trust that we, we are going to build buildings that are helpful and add to the quality of our neighborhoods rather than take away from it. Right. You, you communicate this idea of density that isn't that post-war uh, car-centric model. Right. And again, we, we try to look at the success we've had. We look at who's living in the core. We, we've changed a lot of the demographics of who's living uh, in, these, in, in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing a lot more uh, diversity in the new buildings. Uh, and we'd like to continue that. We think it's the sort of message Nova Scotia is trying to portray. Uh, we've done a lot of work as a province on recognizing our deficiency in attracting new immigrants mm-hmm. and young people. And we recognize there's a, there's a correlation between the needs of those communities and the type of apartment housing and, and multi-unit dwellings and, and, and in urban environments that people want. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily having to look at all the new areas to build this type of housing, but integrating it with community is what the market's demanding. So we want to make sure that we can have an intelligent conversation about why we're doing this. It's not simply to benefit a developer in some cases, as is suggested, but it's to benefit our whole community, ensure that these great neighborhoods stay vibrant long into the future. Mm-hmm. And create vibrancy, uh, create walkability. I, I'm picturing uh, probably like a six-story uh, multi-unit thing with regi- resi- or, uh, sorry, commercial on the ground, ground floor. Yeah, that's ideal in a lot of locations. Um, frankly, though, when we were talking... Uh, before we, we worked on the center plan, a lot of applications that were coming in weren't for mid-rise. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who were coming, because they were taking risk, because we hadn't built residential in the core, there was a lot more density being asked for. We have some 18 and 14-story buildings in these neighborhoods that we think are the right type of 18 and 14-story buildings, tower on podium, good separation, good setback, lots of commercial on the ground floor, not a lot of, no surface parking in most cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the type of buildings we want, but it wasn't um, an incremental scale-up. Uh, and I think that was sort of the risk that people were taking because we hadn't built in the core in a long time. Mm-hmm. And now the conversation is, can we can we change that model and bring it into a more moderate scale so that we can we can see these happening more often and not through a 18 to 24 month conversation with the community, but through an as of right process. So what might come with the as of right is less time waiting for an application, Mm -hmm. but a higher quality of design and perhaps a sacrifice on the overall scale of the building from the development community. Mm -hmm. And it seems like with this plan, the rubbers hit the road, but uh, what are some challenges that, that you think are coming, coming up ahead? Well, for, for, I mean, two things here. The Main Street plan is just outside our regional center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has some challenges in market interest. So watching the first couple developments go there to tilt those scales and get developers' interest in the area is going to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, a, a big challenge is just 
making that jump that the cost of new construction can be recaptured through a rental or a, or, or a condo project in an area that's outside our regional center and doesn't quite have the walk score um, that we would have. But the site does have amenities like uh, healthcare facilities that, that maybe don't exist in the uh, urban center in some cases. So we're, we're really curious to see when they build, who lives there, and how that demographic looks a little different than maybe the more urban uh, redevelopments. Mm -hmm. Inside the regional center, uh, the biggest hurdles for us now, um, we've gotten the approval of our council with the direction uh, of a policy document, and we're working on the regulations now. But there's the rubber hitting the road. And when those regulations come in, have we hit that sweet spot where we're going to have an easier process, um, but maybe some of the the clawback on on individual site density so that we can spread that out over all of our commercial cores um, might there might be some pushback on that right so we're really curious to see how our regulations are received by the the, the public at large and and the development community when we come up with them later this year okay well Jacob I wish you all the best thanks so much finally the summit ended on a question of equity and diversity not everyone enjoys the benefits of urbanism. In fact, its unintended effect has often been gentrification. As well, internally, urban planning has been rightly called out as an old white boys club. We speak to newly named Canoe Vice President Kaylin Anderson, Director of Planning Coordination for the City of Edmonton, about next steps. Please stay on the line while your call is completed. Long-distance charges may apply. Hello, Kaylin speaking. Uh, hi, Kaylin. This is Glenn Bowerman from Spacing Radio. So I, I wanted to begin uh, just for our listeners by asking you to, uh, uh, you know, explain your role or what kind of things are you working on in the city of Edmonton right now? Sure. Um, so my name is Kaylin Anderson. I'm a director of planning coordination for the city of Edmonton. What I do at the city is I work with a team of about uh, 70 different people. Um, engineers, planners, parks planners, um, drainage experts, and we review land development applications and um, new rezonings and new plans that come in from typically the development industry or individual landowners who are looking for um, an opportunity to do something different with their property. And then we work through the planning process with them and bring them to city council for a decision. So my team makes recommendations to council who then makes the decisions. What specific projects right now are are kind of uh, are you energized about? Well, so we work on all kinds of projects, everything from very small scale infill, so um, you know turning a single house into maybe a triplex, right up to brand new neighborhoods on the outskirts of the uh, of the city. But right now, I think the the kind of work that's capturing everyone's attention and imagination are these very big infill projects that are starting to emerge in alignment with our brand new LRT system. We have an older LRT line that's mm -hmm. been around since the 70s, but actually we're in the process now of building our first major new line in a long time. And um, there just seems to be, the city seems to be at a bit of a tipping point. We're about to reach a million people. And there's suddenly a much more, not only urban conversation that's starting to occur, but an expression of a different urban city is emerging. So uh, it's it's kind of, there's different scales and sizes and types of projects in the city that uh, we haven't seen before. So 
kind of big towers, big mixed-use developments on old shopping malls, uh, things like that are starting to happen, uh, not as the exception, but kind of as the rule. So this is this has been something that's really been uh, keeping us busy and also challenging us to think differently about the kind of city we live in and how we're growing and how it's starting to look. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to talk about the uh, the summit uh, that we, we were at in Winnipeg itself, um, what, what for you were were some of the takeaways? Yeah, um, it was a sort of a jam packed summit with a lot of very cool speakers talking about some interesting things. And the theme was the math, um, city making math, the art and science of urban design. And um, I was reflecting on what I took away. I mean, you hear so many different kind of presentations and engaging so many conversations. There's always a few nuggets that resonate after the fact. And for me, my major takeaway was when you're trying to paint a compelling picture or advance a policy, um, evidence is very, very important, but evidence is not enough. Uh, Storytelling is incredibly important, but storytelling is not enough. It's when you bring together the power of evidence and story that you can finally create um, a conversation that people will buy into and understand uh, because it connects on multiple levels in terms of... um, uh, you know, describing an outcome that might occur if we do or do not do a certain thing, also backed up by by good math and empirical and empirical evidence. So, for me, that was my takeaway. There were a lot of different sessions, but I was really thinking about what I'll bring back into my own practice. And I have been focusing, and my team has been focusing on evidence based decision making more and more, and the math of city making. We've also been focusing on using power of storytelling and and the power of important impactful communication. But what I'll what I'll really reflect on and think about and integrate into my work after the summit is the two have to be together. Um, you have to use story and evidence together in order to get a good point across. And often a lot of the work that we're doing as uh, in, in kind of urbanism professions, and I guess there are a few, is we're trying to paint a picture uh, and help people make important either policy decisions or development implementation choices or other things like that. So from my perspective, that was a pretty cool uh, takeaway, and I'm going to think more on how I can bring that into my daily work. And you've recently uh, recently been named uh, the vice president of uh, Canadian urbanism. Um, what What do you hope to bring to that role? Yeah, it's a pretty exciting opportunity to be um, a vice president of an organization uh, such as this. And I think that the organization is undergoing um, an opportunity to change and to to rethink how how it delivers its mandate and how it it connects with um, urbanists and non-urbanists from coast to coast. One of the things I'm certainly engaged in is uh, thinking about how we can bring more diversity um, to the conversation, to the to the the, uh, the conversations that we host, um, the pe- the folks that we engage with, the people who are engaged with us, and um, and that would be not just diversity in terms of different types of thinking about urbanism, but also you know who's in the room. Do we have a diverse crowd in terms of people from different backgrounds, expertise? Um, cultural heritage, age, gender, et cetera, really thinking more deeply about how we can create, help 
foster a conversation about urbanism from coast to coast that's more reflective of our population and really thinking about that. So I think that's a really exciting challenge and something that um, the board is pretty excited about leaning into. And we've already had some really good conversations with uh, a few different folks who would be interested in, in helping move that agenda ahead. Right, because sort of related, uh, the the summit, uh, in a way, ended with a question posed by architect Ken Greenberg, uh, who who pointed out that um, in the last couple of years, uh, the gains that have been made in urbanist circles um, in cities like uh, Vancouver and Toronto, and they've had a sort of side effect of gentrification. and And the question he posed was, how do we bring the benefits of urbanism to neighborhoods uh, without? Uh, Without pushing people out, how do how do we bring benefits of urbanism to neighborhoods that everyone can enjoy? Yeah, I think that was a critically important question. Um, the whole notion of, of kind of the social urbanism, I think, is the next place where we as professionals or just engaged citizens need to be thinking. Um, if if urbanism just adds up to shiny shiny beautiful spaces um, for a few elite. I don't think it served our cities well and that our cities won't be able to serve in turn their citizens well. Um, thinking about social equity, thinking about how um, spaces contribute to healthy, diverse community, um, authentically healthy in all the different aspects, um, social health and uh, emotional health and all of these kinds of bits and pieces are very important um, as we go forward. It is it is something to be aware of in our in our big cities um, and even our mid-sized cities. Um, in fact, especially, probably especially in them when you think about the fact that we have a country that's really supported by mid-sized cities and um, they're going to be poised to change in some form um, or another over time. So how will these communities change? How will they grow? Will they grow like the big cities before them or will they make different choices? So I think what Ken was was asking us to think about more seriously and um, it's, it's a really tricky topic and it's something that's super important for us to commit to across the country is how are we actually building communities together for people, um, not just certain pockets, not just for certain types of people and how are we addressing some of the underlying um, social tensions, opportunities, issues that make our communities real for humans as part of our lives. Um, I thought it was a, a really, really provocative question. I think it's exactly the, the place that our conversation across the country needs to go next. And now a little housekeeping. I have to tell you about Spacing's latest book, 25 Days That Changed Toronto. Our editors Dylan Reed and Matt Blackett have assembled a dream team of contributors like Jamie Bradburn, former guest Adam Bunch, and Carolyn Smarts-Frost, just to name a few. It's the perfect introduction to the history of Canada's largest city, and it makes a great gift. Holidays are coming up, folks. Also, our national issue is in stores now, and we bring you stories from cities large and small from one end of Canada to the other. Learn about the raising of Hogan's Alley, the first black neighborhood in Vancouver, or the messy aftermath of Expo 67. Grab one wherever fine magazines are sold. We have plenty more to share from our trip to Winnipeg. We have a big project plan. It's going to be a little different in a good way, so please stay tuned for that next month. And that is the show. 
Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your favorite policy wonk, your booster, or your diehard Jets fan. As always, a like, share, rating, or subscribe on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, celebrate your neighborhood convenience store. Cheers. Cheers.